our attention now to a topic that you've actually heard mentioned several times already um, this morning, and that's one of manage and presentation. So just a quick outline of what I'm going to cover. So I'm going to talk about why we need antigen process in the presentation. I'm going to talk about the ligands and how they're generated, the pathways. I'm going to just one slide and a quick couple quick comments just about how, how viruses try to avoid these pathways. I'm going to spend some time talking about the other MHC pathways that diversify that, that set of ligands at the cell surface. I'm going to have one slide on co-stimulation um, that was also mentioned briefly this morning, but I'm sure it will come into subsequent lectures when you hear about T-cell function later on. And then I'm going to revisit the idea of the antigen presenting cells. I think Stephanie did a good job this morning, but I want to highlight some of the things she said. And I was think it's important to hear things more than once if you really want to learn them. So question number one, you know, you know, what am I going to talk about and why am I going to talk about it? Well, what I'm going to talk about is really just about immune system surveillance. So as has already been mentioned today, antibodies do an excellent job of um, paroling extracellular spaces so they can find viruses that are floating around, bacteria, and bind to toxins and neutralize them. They're even very good at detecting you know, like viral envelopes on the cell surface. So here we have a, a layer, epithelial layer of cells and a virus is infected in and the envelope proteins have ended up on the cell surface and then antibody can see that. The problem there for the immune system though is that there's also pathogens that can hide inside cells in, in the intracellular spaces. So for example, you can get bacteria um, such as listeria that live in the cytosol of cells. And some viruses that are not, you know, enveloped can pretty much hide inside these extracellular spaces. So the immune system had to evolve a way to be able to see, you know, use their x-ray vision to, to use a term that should use this morning. I thought that was a really good way to think about it. X-ray vision to see inside the extracellular space. And that, that pathway is called the antigen processing and presentation pathway. And the idea behind it is that we have a set of molecules called MHC molecules or major histocompatibility molecules that bind peptides derived from pathogens that live and hide within the cells. And these small peptides get loaded onto the MHC molecules and they traffic to the cell surface where these MHC mo molecules function as the flag to the immune system that, hey, there's something hiding inside, there's a pathogen inside, and you need to make an, a response. And so the MHC um, peptide complexes are subsequently recognized by um, cells of the adaptive immune response, the T cells. So what we're going to spend our time talking about today, for the most part, in my hour of my lecture, is how these ligands are, are generated and loaded onto the, the molecules um, and how this process is controlled in the, in the cells. So as I mentioned, um, the T cells are, the ligand for the T cell is, is peptide or some sort of ligand bound to major histocompatibility complex molecules. I will refer to them going forward as MHC molecules. And they sort of sit on surface of the antigen presenting cells and also other cells of, of, of the body. And they're ultimately recognized by T cells. So I like to show this, this um, figure right here, which shows in green a dendritic cell. And then these round little balls are, are, are T cells. 
and they're interacting with the antigen presenting cell. And the main and, um, part of this interaction that provides specificity for this um, interaction between the T cell and the dendritic cell is via the MHC molecule on the surface of the antigen presenting cell or on the cell and T cell on the surface of, of the T cell. And here's just the crystal structures for those of you that um, like to look at crystal structures. So here we have the MHC molecule with a peptide and a T cell receptor up here on the surface of the T cell. And again, just to remind you that what is going to be in the groove of these MHC molecules are pathogen-derived peptides, um, either from viruses, um, bacteria, or even fungi or, or parasites, any type of pathogen that can get into the cell. Um, so there's two different types of MHC molecules called MHC class 1 and MHC class 2. So they'll be abbreviated as MHC1 and MHC2 in my slides. And there's two different types of, of class 2, class 1 molecules because they're recognized by different subsets of T cells and they provide different functions in the immune system um, to ensure that the right immune spots response is generated against the, the pathogen that's infecting um, the, 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 the person. So here we have MHC class 1 molecules, and they are recognized by CD8 T cells. Um, and the consequence of this interaction is that CD8 T cells degranulate and, and then kill the cell that is expressing the MHC class 1 peptide complex. So the function of CD8 T cells, the effector function of CD8 T cells is going to be the kill um, cells infected with pathogens. CD4 T cells, on the other hand, are known as the helpers of the immune system, and they, they provide and secrete cytokines and other factors that tell other molecules of the immune system what, what to do, how to respond. And so the presentation in this case is mediated via MHC2 molecules on the surface of antigen and presenting cells peptide here, and then you have the T cell on the, the, on the CD4 T cell. So these two different pathways function to really take care of different aspects of the immune system and to clear different types of, of pathogens, and we'll come back to that. So based upon that, then what is presented by, by MHC? Um, well, remember that MHC presentation, I've already told you that it's to alert the immune system that there's an invading pathogen, and specifically an invading pathogen that's hiding within the cell. So the MHC molecules moving to the cell surface accurately display pathogen-derived pe peptides at the cell surface. And again, this process is called immune surveillance. So the MHC molecules are really there to ensure that immune surveillance can happen at a high level. So what is presented by these different molecules? So first of all, MHC class one molecules, which I've already told you present to CD8 T cells, bind their peptides in the cytosol, or, or sorry, bind peptides derived from pathogens that live in the cytosols of cytosols of cells. And again, the, the effector function in this case by the T cell is going to be to directly kill that pathogen. So what types of uh, pathogens live within this in the cytosol cell? Well, obviously all viruses infect the cell and ultimately end up using the cellular protein translation machinery um, to create their own viral proteins. So that's one target of, of the MHC class one pathway. And because the, the proteins are broken down in the cytosol, this pathway is also known as the endogenous pathway of presentation. On the other hand, the MHC class two pathway is thought of as the exogenous um, pathway of presentation. And this is because 
the, the proteins or pathogens that access this pathway access it from the outside in. So it's things, pathogens that are either being phagocytosed or, or endocytosed into the endosomes and lysosomes in the um, compartment of, of antigen-presenting cells. Or in the case of B cells, it is whole virus or proteins or any other thing that a B cell receptor on the surface of a B cell can bind and internalize into the endocytic compartments of the B cell again. So in this case, the peptides are degraded in these endocytic compartments at low pH. And again, this is going to get active um, presented to CD4 T cells. In this case, the effector functions are going to be a little bit different. So this cell right here is a macrophage and macrophages are known upon endocytosis of pathogens. What they do is they acidify and, and make their endocytic compartments or endosomes and lysosomes and phagosomes really hostile. And it allows um, for the direct killing of the, the pathogens that are inside the, the, the um, vesicles. In the case of B cells, they will internalize and, and bring these antigens in and process and present them on question. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then the net effect of this is that that is necessary for full B cell activation to allow the B cells to secrete the antibody that's necessary for the other part of the adaptive immune response. So I think a theme you will, if you haven't already learned in this class, but that you definitely will learn by the end of the day, by the end of the class, is that all parts of the immune system really work together. So antigen presentation, although it's all about activating T cells, the T cells are necessary to help the other cells of the immune system, including the B cells, in order to mount a, a productive immune response. And so the, these two pathways really are a division of labor. And I think a good way to think about this is that the MHC class one pathway really is about endogenous pathogens, meaning that the, that it presents peptides that are mainly derived from proteins that are synthesized within the cell or live in the cytosol of cells. On the other hand, the class two pathway is for exogenous antigens. So it presents peptides from proteins that are endocytosed into cells and live in the endocytic compartment. So because we have this diversification of, of the response, the, the cellular expression of MHC class one and class two molecules are different. So MHC class one, turns out is, is expressed on all cells of the immune system, as well as other cells um, in the body. So it's not really, expression of it is not localized only to cells of the immune system. It's expressed everywhere. And this is important because class one presents peptides again from cytosolic antigens, which of course are going to include viral um, antigens. And viruses can infect virtually every cell of your body. So they're obviously one virus is going to be terrific for one type of cell, or I guess a couple, in, in some cases, a couple cell types. But there's very few viruses that are able to infect every single cell of your body. So it's important to have class one on all cells of, of the body because the virus can infect and then ultimately you need to activate the CD8 T cells, which will go find the virally infected cells, ultimately killing them as a mechanism to get rid of, of the, the virally infected cells. Class two, on the other hand, is all about immune system activation. So it's, it's um, the CD4 T cells when activate secrete cytokines and other factors that activate and orchestrate the immune response, shaping it to ensure that it's the right response for the pathogen that is is then you know found in the body and because of this 
class two expression is mainly, um, actually almost exclusively ex um, restricted to the antigen presenting cells, so cells of the immune system. So the antigen presenting cells are B cells, macrophages, and of course, dendritic cells, which are um, the most important dendritic cell. You also find class two expression in the thymus, and you're gonna learn about T cell selection and development in the next um, lecture, but you have to have it in the thymus in order to allow the self-reactive T cells to be deleted from the, from the repertoire. You do not find class two on other cells of, of the body. However, class two can be upregulated under certain conditions when under the right cytokine conditions to allow class two to be expressed elsewhere um, because it, it's sometimes necessary to have um, it on these cells to make sure that the effector functions of the T cells are, are, are operating properly. So what do class one and class two molecules look like? Well, they look very similar overall in their, uh, their structure. And the characteriz they're characterized by having a peptide binding domain. So you can see here a peptide binding domain and the peptide fits very tightly in the groove. Um, and then two constant region domains that go down into the, 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 the membrane of the cell. And so if you look at the crystal structure of class one versus whoops, sorry about that, versus class two, they're nearly identical. But how the proteins are actually put together to get to that overall structure is somewhat different. So for class one, you have a heavy chain that encodes for the alpha one and alpha two domain that come together to form the peptide bonding groove. And this MHC class one heavy chain also has one of the, the conserved constant domains, or they're called immunoglobulin-like domains. And the, the other immunoglobulin domain in the case of class one is contributed by something called beta-2M or by a protein called beta-2M that is basically a secreted immunoglobulin domain and it associates during assembly in the ER with the class one heavy chain to form the overall structure. Class two molecules, again, have very similar structure. However, in this case, um, they're composed of an alpha and a beta chain. So the peptide binding domain comes from the alpha one domain of the alpha chain and the beta one domain of the beta chain. And again, they associate and make this um, peptide binding group. And each of these change all chains also um, provide one of these immunoglobulin-like I'm having problems talking today, sorry. Immunoglobulin-like domains um, to form the overall structure. So class one is a heavy chain plus beta-2M, whereas MHC class two molecules are a heterodimer composed of an alpha and a beta chain. But I think the, the more important part of this is that overall the structure is actually very, very similar. Um, they're both type one transmembrane proteins. They're both highly glycosylated. They're, they're very similar in every, every other way, shape and form, except for how the, the protein subunits themselves come together. Um, so a little bit more about the MHC peptide binding um, group of these molecules. They're characterized by a very, very highly conserved um, structure, which is an alpha helixes on both sides. And then the bottom of the peptide binding group, you can see is this beautiful beta pleated sheet and then showing in this electron filled micro, um, um, peptide here is actually the peptide that's gonna, that is bound in the MHC group. Again, for class two, it's very similar alpha helixes, beta, um, beta barrel at the bottom. So they look very similar. 
However, there are some differences between the way class one and class two bind peptides. And the main one is that class one has a closed peptide binding group. So I think it's shown, I always like this bottom figure better, where it shows the um, electron, the, the filling uh, um, of a filled model. And so what you see is that the peptide fits very, very tightly in the groove of the class one molecule and the ends are closed up. On the other hand, for class two, class two binds much longer peptides. They're about 12 to 24 amino acids. And what this means is that the ends of the peptide binding group are open, allowing the peptides to spill out over the sides of, of the actual MHC molecule. So because the ends are open, you can have peptide binding of, of much longer um, and less restrictive in length um, peptides. Whereas for class one, this, these closed ends really restrict the length of the peptides that are allowed, that are able to fit into the groove of the MHC class one molecule. So let's just talk a little bit about peptide binding by MHC molecules. And then after I do that, we'll go into the pathway by which those peptides are generated. Um, so peptide binding by of MHC molecules is, is actually quite complex, um, but it's again, very similar for each MHC um, class one and class two molecule. And this is now a, a crystal structure of the MHC um, two binding domain. You can see that the ends are open with the peptide here in the, the, um, the ball model, here is the peptide. And if you take the MHC molecule and turn it 90, 90 degrees and look at it basically from the side. So let's take a slice through it. What you can see is, is it shows us how these peptides bind tightly in the groove of the class two molecules. And the same is true for class one. And what happens is you have something called pockets. So here we have a tyrosine that's protruding really far down into the groove of the MHC class two molecule. And that's an called a pocket and into the pocket an anchor residue from the peptide tightly binds in the, the groove. And I think this is shown much nicer here in this one. So here we have a peptide. And in this case for the MHC molecule, there are two anchor residues. So these are gonna be highly conserved amino acids in each peptide. So it's always gonna be the same for the, these amino acids and they would fit very tightly into the floor of the MHC molecule. And this is shown better here on these residues, sorry, are called anchors, and it's shown very nicely here. So here we have three different peptides that are binding to a mouse class one allele. And what you can see is the anchors are highlighted in purple here. And what I want you to see is that this residue, for example, which is at the C-terminus of the peptide, is always a leucine. So the only way that this, this peptide can fit in the groove of the class two molecule, which is K, I, K of B for mice, um, is to have a leucine at this, this um, point of the peptide. Here's the second anchor residue for this MHC molecule. What you can see is that it's a little bit more permissive. So both tyrosine and phenylalanine can fit. But if you remember back to your biochemistry class, I'm sure everybody knows that tyrosine and phenylalanine are structurally very, very similar. So similar res peptide residues often, or sorry, similar amino acids can often fit into the same pocket. But it, you can't take a, a pocket that fits a tyrosine and put an alanine in it because it just doesn't fit right. So these peptides are um, that bind have 
very, very strict requirements for the proper, proper anchor um, motifs. So that again, these would be fitting into the pockets of, of the MHC binding group. And then down here is a peptide binding motif for actually would be a class two molecule. And again, and just showing you that at the first um, anchor residue place for these this class two allele, you see it's always a tyrosine. And now the C-terminus, there's a little bit more variability here and it's able to tolerate similar amino acids. These anchor motifs are always fixed in the peptide. So they always have to be similar. What is the, the way you get a diversification of the response so that you can have a whole bunch of peptides binding to an MHC molecule is by all the other residues of the peptide can actually change. And so now if you think about this from the standpoint of the, the T cell, we have these anchors binding into the peptide binding group. There are always going to be, you know, these couple amino acids, either a leucine or a tyrosine, but all the rest of these can vary. And this is going to be at the upside, and this is what the T cell receptor can see. So binding to the MHC molecules is restricted, but what the T cell sees is completely unrestricted. It can see the whole scan peptide residues ever imagined by any pathogen or protein. So the peptide motifs, how do we know this? Well, it came from sequencing of peptides from defined alleles, and I'll come back to this a little bit in a while. And they showed a direct relationship between the peptide sequence and the MHC allele it bound to. So people pulled these peptides out, sequenced them, and lined them, and went, wow, every single peptide has the same you know, type of amino acid just at one, one residue. And these are called motifs. And so the motifs, as you can imagine, are really helpful for predicting what peptide from a given protein might bind to your protein of, of interest. Um, there's a lot of computational programs. I always think it's important to tell people out there that will allow you to predict what might bind. Um, they work, these motifs are fairly strong for MHC1 and can be quite helpful. They're much weaker for class two. So you can see there's quite a bit of diversity in this um, motif here for class two. So they don't work quite as well. And I always um, argue that, that having, you know, these programs that actually can accurately predict MHC class one and class two motifs is something that we really need to as a, as a you know, immunological group need to get better at. Um, so that's a good time um, to sort of stop and just t take questions on, you know, the, the basic idea of binding peptides and, you know, the cells. And then what I'm going to do after we take questions is to go into the actual cellular pathways by which the peptides get loaded. Stephanie will ask some questions, yeah. Yeah, we have a couple questions. One is, how does a T cell know if a dendritic cell is presenting antigen versus is itself infected by a virus that needs to be killed? Can you, can you repeat that? I'm sorry. So if a T cell encounters peptide MHC at a dendritic cell, how does it know if that dendritic cell is presenting antigen for the purpose of T cell priming versus okay. is infected by a virus? I missed the priming word. Thank oh. you. Sorry. <laughs> so I'm like, what? Um, so again, this goes back to the, the the lecture that we heard this morning from Stephanie. So the, the main cells of the immune system that can prime a, a naive T cell is a dendritic cell. And so the dendritic cells in the periphery don't have any co-stimulatory molecules. So if a T cell were happened to find a 
you know, a dendritic cell that has a peptide it can recognize in the periphery, there'd be no co-stimulatory molecules and the dendritic cell would just simply ignore that, you know, that activation step. It, it's only when the, the dendritic cell moves into, you know, migrates, you know, in, from the skin through the lymphatics into the lymphoid um, system, into the lymph nodes, sorry, where it can interact with T cells. And because that dendritic cell was activated by a, a or infected with a virus, it would have upregulated its um, co-stimulatory molecules um, via the innate immune system along the way. So is that it? Um, I, th I think so. Okay. So uh, maybe last question on um, class two presenting longer peptides. Uh, is this better? What's the evolutionary purpose for having the few extra amino acids? That's a, that's a good question. And I think nobody really understands that. I think the, the way I, my lab actually works on class two, and the way I think about it, it's just another degree of freedom that allows for a little bit more promiscuous you know, a little, a little bit more um, diversification of, of the peptides that can be presented. And the other reason that the ends of the peptide groove are open for class two has a lot to do with the way that the antigens are loaded in the endocytic compartment of cells. So it, it's not really clear if the, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it's not really clear if the peptides are created by proteases and then bind to class two or if they bind to class two because that peptide groove is open, it turns out just an un, a full-length unfolded protein can bind to class two. So one of the prevailing thoughts is that, well, class two binds to the peptide in the un, you know via the unfolded protein and protects it, and then the proteases come along and clip it up at the ends. And there's evidence for both happening in, in the literature. I don't think we really understand which pathway is more important, but I think the ends might be open um, to allow that, that mechanism to happen in, in the endosomes and lysosomes of cells. And so that may make a little bit more sense once we talk about the class two pathway um, in a few minutes. Okay. All right, I think we'll go ahead and um, now switch to the actual pathways. And I think, you know, it's hard, we, we're putting stops in here for a good reason, because it's easier via Zoom to give everybody stops. But I think some of the questions actually become easier and, and understand as, as we go along, like that last question. So antigen presentation for, for T cells, what, you know, first of all, what I, I sort of alluded to this, but I don't think I really said it so far. So although it's a, the, the, the pathways are there to make sure that T cells can sense intercellular, intercellular infection. But having this diversification of, of these two pathways also allows, uh, also ensures that all compartments, subcompartments within the cell are actually surveyed. So the goal of MHC, at least the way I think of it, is to survey the different compartments in the cells, allowing everything to be presented at the cell surface. So really a diversification of anything that's in the cell needs to be accurately displayed at the cell surface. 
So part of this diversification comes to, from the differ, differential loading of, of the class two, class one and class two molecules with peptides. So class one molecules are loaded with peptide in the ER and then they move to this sort of cell surface, whereas the class two molecules are loaded in endosomes, lysosomes, when they then move to the cell surface and, and activate CD4 T cells. So what I want to do now is, is go through in detail how class one and class two actually end up with the peptide and peptide in their peptide binding group. They're very highly regulated and controlled pathways. So the basic outline for MHC class one uh, processing and presentation is that a cell is going to be infected with a virus, but this also could be a bacteria or you know some other type of pathogen. Ultimately it's going to lead to viral proteins and viral proteins are going to have these peptide epitopes in them that can bind to an MHC molecule. The viral protein will be broken down into viral peptides. The viral peptides then have to be shuttled into the ER where they can meet up with the, the class one molecules. Since class one molecules are part of the secretory pathway, so they're transmembrane molecules. They're, of course, um, synthesized in the cytosol and then translocated into the ER for folding. And that's where the peptide meets up with the class two, it, sorry, class one binds to the, the class one molecule. And then those class one peptide complexes go to the cell surface. So what I want to do is break this down into, into the, you know, discrete steps of, of, of this pathway. And the first one is you know, peptide generation, where do the peptides actually come from? And how does, does the immune system allow this to happen? The cell, I guess, is a better way to put it. So that, just to remind you, the peptide source for most MHC class one molecules are actually endogenous proteins. So proteins that are actually within the cytosol of cells. So how do you get protein, you know, in the cytosol of cells? Well, the main way is that you know, viruses, bacteria are living in cells. And in the case of viruses, it's easy to understand. Ultimately, mRNA is made. Um, the mRNA is then translocated by the cellular ribosomes. And it is known that at a fairly high rate, um, translation is, is, is not super, um, super, um, I'm lacking the word, so I'll just say high error rate in translation. So it's not not high fidelity, sorry. There's lots of errors. And so the RNA is going to be turned into protein. There's going to be errors made. And there are mechanisms that sense these errors. The protein can't be folded properly, other things. And what happens is, is those proteins get shuttled to the pad to, for degradation via the ubiquitin pathway. So these errors trigger ubiquitination of the proteins, which then allows the proteins to be degraded via the proteasome. So just to remind you, I think everybody knows what the proteasome is, but it's a multi subunit catalytic um, enzyme that sits in the cytosols of cells and is essential, first of all, for, for the life of the cell, but also turns over the majority of proteins in the cell. Um, the only other place where you really have a, a high level of, of protein turnover and degradation, of course, is the lysosomes where class two happens. So the protease chews up the proteins, turns them into small little peptides, so this is where the peptides are coming from, from where the MHC class one molecules are coming from the proteasome. So I've already mentioned you have 
effective ribosomal products, otherwise known as DRIPS, that are formed. So these are things that have not have errors in them and recognized by the pathway. But there's other mechanisms for getting, you know, to, for generating proteins that can lead to um, peptides that are ultimately loaded on a class one. And one of these is, is um, the pioneer round of, of mRNA. So when an mRNA is actually first made in the cell, there's a couple of rounds of translation that actually checks to make sure that it's a good RNA. And it's been very nicely shown that that initial round of pioneer translation is a really good source of, of MHC class one proteins. And the goal of pioneer translation is actually to remove defective RNAs. So if you have a defective mRNA, it's going to make a defective protein, which is going to trigger the ubiquitination and, and degradation. Um, you also have something called cryptic products. And what is meant by a cryptic product is that we're all taught that the untranslational region of, um, you know, of, of mRNA and, and other components of the, the um, DNA and RNA are not supposed to turn into proteins. Well, it turns out that at a low level, some of these parts of, of the genome that are supposed to not be translated actually do get translated. They're called cryptic products. And it's been very nicely shown by many labs, especially Milab Shastri's lab, that these cryptic products that get generated on a low level can also be a good source of peptides for MHC class 2. And then the other source of, of peptides really just comes from protein turnover. So all proteins have to turn over in a cell at some rate. Um, so you have a bacteria here, it's going to have pro make proteins, they're going to get shed. And at some point, they're going to be ubiquitinated or not and shuttled to the proteasome, ultimately resulting as a source for peptides. So the source can be that viral proteins, bacterial proteins. And just to come back to something that um, Stephanie said earlier that I forgot to mention earlier is that actually, you know, that the, the the majority of peptides bound to MHC in class one and class two are actually not derived from pathogens, but they're actually derived from our own self-proteins. And um, you're going to talk in the next lecture then how this self-non-self-discrimination occurs and how T-cells know that they've seen a foreign antigen and, and to go and respond. respond. Um, so all of these pathways are also you know, being self-proteins are being fed into all of these pathways too. It's not just restricted at the level of, of the, the viral and bacteria or pathogen proteins. And I like to think about it as basically any protein synthesized within the cytosol of a cell can generate a peptide that can end up on the surface of a, of a MHC class one molecule. There's absolutely nothing special that we know about, about viral proteins or bacterial proteins that make them preferentially expressed, uh, you know, preferentially turned into peptides um, and put on the cell surface. However, antigen presenting cells do something that's really cool to ensure that the peptides that are generated by the proteasome are peptides that are the right length to bind MHC class one molecules. So that, that are about seven to 10 amino acids long. And so what happens is, is that all cells have proteasomes. It's essential that cells can turn over proteins. And these are called constitutive proteasomes. However, antigen presenting cells or in cells that are, you know, basically subject to, to an, an inflammatory um, environment, so there'd be a lot of interferon gamma and other cytokines around, they upreg or they they replace subunits of the proteasome with 
what are called immunoproteasome subunits. And the, so here we have all the subunits are orange, and now we inserted some of these green immunoproteasomes because either it's an antigen-presenting cell, a dendritic cell, or a B cell that's in macrophage that always have the class two pathway turned on. Um, you have these immunoproteasomes. And the net effect of this is that under the normal conditions, situation and then you know a cell that doesn't need to process and present the peptide pool that can bind to class one is fairly restricted so you turn on these immunoproteasomes and all of a sudden you get tons more peptides that are the right size um you know the right tool for the job which is to bind to class one so these immunoproteasomes are very important in making sure and shaping the the the, the peptides that come out of the proteasome so once you have the peptides generated how do you you know, get them into the ER. So the class one, as I already mentioned, is going to be in the ER because it is part of the secretory pathways, transmembrane glycoprotein. The problem here is that the viral peptides can't just float across the membrane, right? There's an ER membrane that they have to get across. So how, how is that taken care of? Well, it turns out that there is a transporter called the transporter associated with antigen processing that lives in the um, membrane of the ER, and it shuttles peptides from the cytosol, so those peptides that the immunoproteasomes make through the ER, excuse me, where they can meet up with the MHC class 1 molecule. So the class 1 molecules, um, um, and, and also I should say that there's also, although the immunoproteasomes make peptides that are about 7 to 10 amino acids long, which is perfect for class 1. There's also an additional trimming step in the ER that further trims them down to make peptides that are an even better size or the right size for um, binding to class 1. And this peptide, peptidase, aminopeptidase, is called ERAP or the ER associated with antigen processing. And so, it's, again, it's another step. It's, it's a redundant mechanism. It's not really redundant because it gives you different sets of of peptides, but it's another um, step in the process that ensures that the right peptides for binding to class one are generated in the right compartment where it's going to be loaded onto class two. So the class um, one molecules actually assemble in the ER with a, a, it's a very complicated folding process that's mediated by a series of chaperones. And then the class one molecule sitting there, the peptide comes through, the amino peptidase chops it into the right length or finishes trimming it, moves, binds it to the cell, it binds to the MHC class one molecule. And then the class one peptide complex is ready for a movement out to the cell surface. So the easiest step in this whole process is how does it get out to the cell surface? So the simple answer to that is that the MHC transport is just simply via the normal vesicular transport pathway. So it moves from the ER through the Golgi and out to the cell surface where it then can be presented to T cells that are specific, that, that harbor a T cell sp receptor specific for the MHC peptide complex. So just to quickly put this all together, you have peptides being generated from proteins either coming from you know errors in translation or from breakdown of normal pro um, proteins in the cytosol. These proteins ultimately get ubiquitinated, moved into the immunoproteasome, so it's just going to chuck out tons of peptides that are the right length. Um, the peptides then move through the ER via TAP. Via the tap channel into the end is into the ER where the amino peptidases can further clip the um, peptides. They then get loaded onto class one and they move out to the cell surface for activation of CDA T cells. 
So again, this is the extracellular space now, and the T cell with its X-ray vision suddenly can see that there's an infected cell. So now I'll talk about the class two pathway, and just to remind you, in this case, the, the peptides are loaded in the endosomes and lysosomes of, of cells, and um, for antigens and proteins that have been internalized into these compartments. So this process is a little bit different. Again, the class two molecules are an alpha beta heterodimer. They're type one transmembrane glycoprotein. So again, they're going to be synthesized in the cytosol and moved into the endoplasmic reticulum or the ER for assembly. And the way they assemble is they actually have a specific chaperone that lives in the ER and helps them assemble and fold, and it's called the invariant chain. So the class two alpha beta heterodimers are loaded onto the invariant chain to form what's known as an alpha beta I complex or an alpha beta invariant chain complex. And this complex then becomes competent to transport from the ER, and it's targeted to endosomes. Um, via the cell surface, via a targeting signal in the, the cytoplasmic tail of chain, cytoplasmic tail of the invariant chain. So the invariant chain really controls trafficking of the class two complex. The other thing the invariant chain does is you can see that there's a little bit of green here, I guess it's shown here, in the, the um, invariant chain. And this part of the invariant chain is called CLEP for class two associated invariant chain peptide. And what CLEP does is it sits in the groove of the class two molecule, even all the way back in the ER here, really preventing class two from prematurely binding peptides. Of course, the, this complex lives in the ER and there's lots of class one peptides being shuttled into this ER. So CLIP binding to the peptide groove um, via the invariant chain is going to prevent class two from binding peptides that are destined on the class one molecule. It also has been shown that the invariant chain binding and protecting the peptide binding groove also prevents unfolded proteins from binding to class two in the ER. The invariant chain provides CLIP and it also provides targeting of these of the class two invariant chain complex into endosome lysosomal compartments. And of course, these compartments are protease rich. It's another you know garbage pail of, of, of the cell where cells have to continually be turning over protein um, so that they can turn it into amino acids and basically recycle it. So there's ton it's a very proteolytically active compartment. And there's proteases, and in particular, a couple that are specific to the immune system, mainly cathepsin S and, and um, AEP, that function to degrade the invariant chain. So what they do is they clip the invariant chain away. I shouldn't use the word clip, sorry. They degrade the invariant chain away from the class two molecule and they leave clip in the groove of the class two molecule. So this sets up a situation where clip needs to come out of the groove before peptides can bind to the class two molecule. And where these peptides come from, they can be antigens or bacteria that are internalized in these compartments, or it could just be proteins that reside in these compartments. Anything that is in this compartment will be processed into small little peptides and potentially loaded onto the class two molecule. So because this clip peptide is there, again, protecting the class two peptide binding groove, there has to be a way to get the clip out of the groove. And it turns out that there's another molecule called DM or HLADM. It's a class two-like molecule. It looks a lot like class two. If I showed you the crystal structure, you'd say, Lisa, that looks like class two. And I would say, yes, it does. 
Um, unlike class two, though, it doesn't bind the Inveri chain and it targets on it or traffics on its own via the Goldie into these endosomal lysosomal compartments. And what DM does is it binds and interacts laterally with the class two molecule, just like I am showing it in this diagram here. And via this association, this pops clip out of the groove of the class two molecule. DM then functions really as a class two specific chaperone and hangs on to a class two molecule, keeping it in peptide receptive form until a peptide that can bind to that class two molecule. So remember many slides back, I talked about these motifs. So it has to be a peptide that has the right, pep the right peptide binding motif to bind to the class two molecule. So when that happens, one other important thing happens. DM will come and associate back with this class two peptide complex, basically ensuring that the peptide that's bound is a really high affinity peptide. So you have this elaborate loading pathway. You want to make sure that the peptides you put in the groove of the class two molecule have a long half-life once you put them out on the cell surface. Because you can remember a dendritic cell is going to pick up the antigen in the periphery and it has to traffic all the way to the lymph node. And it has to hold on to that MHC class two peptide at the cell surface long enough to ensure a really effective um, antigen presentation, so activation of the, the naive CD4 T cells. So it, if, if this is not a good peptide, the first one that binds, it's been shown that DM can edit it out, so pop it back out and allow a different peptide to bind. But ultimately what this does is it allows that very high affinity peptides move to the cell surface. And class two peptide complexes can live on the surface of cells for as long as two weeks. So they're very, very high affinity and can really live a long time. So just to remind you, the MHC pathways survey different intracellular compartments. Class one is really surveying the um, cytosol, the peptides bind in the ER and they move to the cell surface. On the other hand, the class two molecules are surveying, you know, the endocytic compartments where peptide directly binds and they move to the cell surface for CD4 and CD8 T cell activation. So I always, you know, when I teach this, I think, oh, it's so tidy and beautiful and, you know, I should just stop here, but I can't. Um, it turns out that there's another pathway, which I We'll have to get a long discussion about everybody with this, but I think it's probably the most important um, class one pathway. And this pathway is called the class, um, the cross presentation pathway. And so just to remind you, I told you earlier that the main function of presentation by class one, MHC, there's a typo here, that should not be there, <laughs> is, and it's also called the classical antigen presentation pathway, is to generate MHC one peptide complexes so CD4, CD8 T cells can detect and kill infected cells. So cells that are harboring viruses, bacteria, whatever, the CD8 T cells are going to go out in the periphery and want them and kill them as a mechanism to get rid of it. However, if you think about this, um, we also, th there's something missing here because we also learned earlier that presentation of MHC by dendritic cells, in particular MHC1 by dendritic cells, is necessary for the activation of these naive T cells, so the initial activation step. But what if a virus can't directly infect a dendritic cell? then that virus is basically never going to be seen by a CD8 T cell because you can't activate the naive T na naive CD8 T cell because the virus is not directly in the dendritic cell. So it turns out that there's a pathway that co-evolved with this called the cross-presentation pathway to solve this problem. And 
in its simplest form, the, the, what this means is that the MHC class one molecule binds a peptide from an exogenous source. So from the pathway that we normally think of ending up with class two loading, it actually ends up with class one loading. So here we have an exogenous um, pathogen being internalized in the peptides presented on class two. However, in the class in the cross-presentation pathway, what happens is, is that the peptides that are generated somehow get cross-presented into the class one pathway and end up on this, you know, being bound to class one and moved to the cell surface. So I think this is actually a nicer picture of this. So basically what I'm trying to say is that you have a virally infected cell somewhere. So, you know, take your lung epithelial cell that expresses the ACE2 receptor and is now harboring harboring SARS-CoV-2. Somehow a dendritic cell has to get that virus and get all those proteins to initiate the CD, you know, the CAT cell response. So what happens is, is at some level, the virus is going to kill the cells it's in, either because it's lytic or because it just does what viruses does and kills the cell. That cell's going to die and it can be eaten by a cell of the immune system. So by a dendritic cell, et cetera. So now you have the, the dead cell with the virus in it inside the cytos, inside the endosomes of the, the dendritic cell. The cross-presentation ensures that those peptides from the endocytic pathway get cross-presented onto the MHC1, allowing the virus-specific spe- CDAT cells to be activated. So what's the mechanism of this? Um, well, before we talk about this, first of all, what can be, be presented by cross-presentation? So the previous slide, that really nice model, shows you know, the virus itself. But it, it doesn't have to be just the virus itself. It can be the internalization of phagocytosis of any antigen-containing material. So what is an antigen-containing material? It can be a protein from a virus. It doesn't have to be the whole viral product. product whole viral particle. It could be a cell fragment, so a piece of membrane that contains the envelope of the protein, in this case, the, you know, the S protein. It could be a viral particle that has escaped and is where it's not supposed to be, and the dendritic cell is just going to eat it. It could be dead or live bacteria. It could be any protein that is internalized into the endocytic system. So how this happens is there's thought to be two main pathways. So the first one is really easy to understand. It's the vacuolar pathway. And what's meant by this is that you know, one of these antigen-containing materials is phagocytosed into the endocytic compartment. And there's a li- all proteins that live on the cell surface to recycle through the endocytic um, pathway at a low level. So there is some class one in these compartments and the, they get loaded with you know, peptides derived from this exogenous antigen and just move to the cell surface. So that's called the vacuolar pathway. The other pathway is the cytosolic pathway. And in this case, what happens is, is that you get internalization, phagocytosis, it moves into, you know, endosomes, lysosomes, or phagosomes. And there is some mechanism that the antigen is exported into the cytosol. And this is a step that is really, really poorly understood. Nobody knows how this can happen, but it's clear that it does happen. And once the antigens and the cytosols just access the normal class one pathway. So one thing that can happen is that the protein can be degraded by the proteasome into peptides, and then they just move into ER. We have our normal pathway that we talked about. Um, In some cases, however, it's clear that the peptides themselves get transported back into this phagosome. And it turns out that the, the class one loading complex, so that empty class one molecule, 
and tap and all the other things you need actually sit in, in phagosomes at a low level and can be loaded with the peptide prior to, prior to transport to the cell surface. So again, this is a very poorly understood cell biological process, but I think from the, the, you know, the immunological standpoint of this, it's very clear that the cross-presentation pathways happen and that it's really important for the presentation, for the activation of naive um, CD8 T cells and, and CD8 4 T CD8 T cells, sorry, um, in for viral infections that do not directly infect dendritic cells. And then I am not going to spend a lot of time on this slide. I don't think it makes sense to go through this. I just have one simple point I want to make about this. And, and I think it's really important. It's a really nice illustration of how important CD8 T cell response is to viral infection. So it turns out that viruses and also tumors use have multiple different mechanisms that really subvert the MHC class one antigen presenting pathway. So what the, these viruses are trying to do is not allow the antigen presenting cells to present these class one peptide complexes on the cell surface so that the CD8 T cells can't come and kill the infected cells. And so here I just pulled a, a slide from a review that's actually a little bit old now, about 10 years old. But this is just the different herpes viruses and all the different mechanisms that are used by this set of, of viruses to really subvert the immune systems. Um, also, the MHC class 2 pathway is targeted and it's not restricted just to herpes viruses. So viruses are really actively trying to get rid of presentation because it is so effective at saying to the T cells, hey, there's a, there's a then you know, an infection here and we need to respond. So now is a good time for questions. And then I just, the last couple of slides will go much faster because we've already covered most of it. So there are a quick couple of questions. There's lots of questions. Stephanie can ask a few, I'm sure. Yes, um, we had a couple people asking about uh, whether, like how you make sure that you have a peptide that can be presented from a particular virus? What if it doesn't have the right anchor residues? Um, and so can you speak a little bit to uh, HLA restriction in terms of... Um, oh, you know, I am just going to kick that down to the next couple slides. <laughs> okay. So I'm taking the time here. Then um, we also had some uh, questions on cross-presentation and whether it can occur in macrophages and the difference between macrophages and dendritic cell lysosomes. So it, it is clear that some cells do it better than others. Um, there is a subset of dendritic cells. If I, let me speak at the, I think it was CDC1 on Stephanie's slide that are really specialized for cross-presentation. So there's cells that are really good at this and, and mediate it. But it's also clear that other cells, and in particular some sets of, of macrophages, can cross-present. All right, I think we can move on. I've been answering the rest of the questions. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> All right, so um, I just want to, you know, Stephanie asked a really good question, and, and it's actually fundamental to understanding all of this. So if you have these motifs that restrict binding to, you know, to the MHC molecules, how do you, first of all, get a broad display of peptides at the cell surface? But also, how do you deal with, you know, when you have a pathogen that doesn't bind, that doesn't have a protein that has the right motif to bind to a specific allele? So I think this is a slide I stole from Nilab Chastri, and um, I think it really nicely illustrates this. And what it's showing here is that, first of all, 
all of us express on our cell surfaces multiple MHC class one and class two alleles. And each of these alleles have different peptide binding motifs. So these are actually from mice, but it's the same in humans. So this is a mouse that has three different class one genes and, and alleles. So there's K of B, D of B, and L of D. And each of these class one molecules has a different binding motif. So here you can see there's an F phenylalanine and a, and a leucine here that restricts binding to K of B. Whereas in this case, it's, and I think it's aspartate versus and methionine are the anchor residues for the D of B allele. And for the L of D allele, it's going to be a proline at residue two and a valine at, at the last residue. So each one of these is going to bind a different subset of peptides. And you can see nicely in these Venn diagrams that that's going to allow, you know, if you, in this case, this subset of peptides will bind to L of D, this will bind to D of B, and this will bind to K of, of B. So this gives you a broad coverage of all the different peptides that can be generated. The slide is a little unfair because there's probably still a lot more peptides that can't bind to anything. But it's clear that what, you know, that these three different alleles that you have enough coverage of the different peptides that you can respond to, to most peptides that you need to. And the similar, it's similar also for class two alleles. So in humans, there's three different types of class two, um, DR, DP, and DQ. And then within these three different genes, there's also many different alleles. And each one of those alleles is going to have a different peptide binding motif. And so, um, and there's lots and lots of different alleles. So what's going to happen is, is that you're going to, you know, you have, you get three from mom. So you get a one DR, one DQ, and one DP from mom. And you get another three DR, DP, DQ from dad. And Based upon genetics and chance, it's most likely that mom and dad have different alleles of, of DR, DP, DQ. So you can end up with at least six different MHC2 molecules that each binds a different set of peptides. Now, of course, there are situations where people get the same three from mom and dad, but that um, is actually a minority compared to most of us, which have really, you know, six different MHC molecules. And the same thing happens for, for class one. You get three from mom and three from dad. So you can have an overall six different possibilities of six different class one alleles at the cell surface or molecules at the cell surface that can bind different sets of peptides. This really provides a diversification of what can be bound. And a way to think about this is this turns the cell surface into a natural protein chip. So you, you have the, all of these MHC molecules and all these different kinds of MHC molecules at the cell surface representing what's happening inside the cell. And just a little bit more of how diverse and the, the, you know, the probability of getting different alleles is there's more than a thousand MHC class one alleles in humans. There's hundreds of MHC two alleles. And because you get three to six different MHC class one and class two proteins. So if your parents are different, you get six. If they happen to be the same, you only get three. And so if you do the math, that means that you can have about 20,000 different peptides per cell. And you have probably about 100,000 different MHC class one molecules at the cell surface. So the cell surface really is a protein chip expressing all these different peptides, allowing the T cells to survey for the peptide they can recognize. And when they see one, they, they, you know, in the right environment with the right cues, with the innate immune system activation, they know that it's time to go and, and make a response. 
Um, I've already talked about that. So I just, the, the other level of diversification doesn't come at the level of the class one and class two alleles. It actually comes at the level of other MHC molecules. So we've talked about class one and class two that are highly polymorphic. And, you know, that's why you have these hundred different possibilities for a thousand different possibilities for mom and dad. But there's also non-polymorphic um, MHC-like molecules that provide different, have different ways of, of contributing to this immune surveillance and making sure that you can accurate, that the MHC molecules themselves overall can accurately reflect an infection ongoing in the cells. So the first one of these are um, the, the molecules called QA1 and 2, and they bind a very limited set of peptides. So QA1 and, you know, from person to person, are nearly identical. There's very little polymorphism in them. So my QA1 is, is similar to yours. Um, they bind peptides and they're recognized. They, 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 these other poly, um, MHC molecules tend to have more specialized functions in the immune system. And in this case, these CD8 T cells um, become Tregs or they can be re NK receptor ligands. So they, they really have a diversified immune function. The other one that I think is really kind of